Hey guys, this is Jody Holland. And I am Megan Holland. Welcome to the Become the Leader podcast. We're going to have some fun today. We're going to talk about uh, some lessons out of Patrick Lencioni's book, The Motive. If you haven't read the book, highly encourage you to go pick that up. You can get it online at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever your favorite business books are sold. But in the book, he talks about the variation between two different kinds of leaders. There's the reward-centered leader. This is the leader that believes, hey, I worked really hard. They owe me this position. Or there's the responsibility-centered leader. Hey, I worked really hard. I got promoted. Oh my gosh, I better work even harder to make sure I do a great job. And you've probably met one of each, I'm sure, at least. I've worked for both kinds of leaders. And I can tell you, the ones that believe that they were owed something are a pain in the butt to work for. Without a doubt. I have experienced both of them. And I will say, everyone working for the leader that chooses responsibility over thinking that they're owed something has their employees on track and are willing to work more effectively, more efficiently, and are happy to do so. And I always think about it, like when I was a kid, I was taught never ask your employees to do something that you wouldn't be willing to do. So if I need toilet scrubbed, if I am unwilling to scrub toilets because I'm quote unquote above that, guess what? It's going to be very difficult to convince my people to go do the thing I need done. So the responsibility-centered leader feels like they have an obligation to get better and better as a leader so that they have more to offer to the people that are working for them. We have said this over and over again. You need to lead by example. Leaders are not there to just delegate for everybody. They're there to show you how to do something and teach you, develop your team, work together and build each other up. It's not talking down to your employees. It is working with them, alongside them, and then helping them grow within the company. Absolutely, which actually is a perfect introduction to the first thing that responsibility-centered leaders do. They develop their team effectively. Uh, I go back to John Maxwell's Law of the Lid, where he said, you can only develop people to one level below what you've been developed to. So going back to you lead by example, if you want people to study and grow and become a better person, you go first. Absolutely. And I've had a boss that did that perfectly. You know, she wanted her employees to grow. And once her employees did grow, she recognized that maybe they couldn't grow within the company anymore. And she was all right with them leaving for better opportunities because she didn't take it so personally. She knew that she wanted the best for the employees and if the best thing was to move to another company, you know, she supported that person because she taught you as much as she could and then you found new opportunities. Yeah, and that I think there's good turnover and there's bad turnover. The good turnover is what you're describing where you develop somebody, they're fantastic, but they're meant for even bigger things than what maybe you can provide as an opportunity there. And so it's perfectly okay for them to move on. I mean, I think about my buddy, Mike, that worked for me. We became friends by working together. And then, man, that dude was going places. And so he moved up, but he moved into a bigger company, into a leadership role, and he's continued to move up ever since then. So when you develop your team, you take great pride in them moving themselves forward. The insecure leader is always worried about, well, if I 
if I invest time and energy and money in these people, they might leave. Right. And I've also seen bosses who purposely don't want their employees to grow because they are scared that that employee is going to outshine them mm-hmm. and take over their position or go above them even or become a competitor. So they purposely hold them back. And that's not what a good leader will do. No, succession planning 101 is you're always training somebody to take your job. If you are unpromotable, like you're protecting your job, I mean, if you're um, irreplaceable, you're protecting your job, that makes you unpromotable. So the second thing that great leaders do is they manage subordinates and ensure that they manage their subordinates. So when you're managing your subordinate, think about high output management. Your job is to accomplish greatness through other people as a leader. So when you're trying to become the leader that people would follow, if you're helping them succeed, not by doing their job, but by intentionally managing the behaviors and the outcomes that they get, you inspire them to want to give more and more and more of who they are. Discretionary effort makes up almost 70% of the potential work that a person can give. So they give you what's required. It's about 33%. And then you've got about 67% more work that they can give, but only if they're managed effectively. Right. And this is an active interaction. It's not a passive interaction. You are very involved in um, teaching managers and how to manage others. But again, that's not barking orders at people. So when you say active, I mean, I know you're very involved, but what are some of the things that you would consider to be an active manager? An active manager is going to be on site. They're going to be involved in the processes um, that the employees are going through. And it's checking in on people, but it is not micromanaging. You don't need to know every single detail of their day, Mm -hmm. but you check in, you set goals with your employees, you meet marks, and then you ask them for feedback. I think that's really important is it has to be a two-way street for communication. It's not just one person telling the other person do this, and then that person telling another person to do this. It is like, telling them, okay, are you going to be able to do this and meet your goal by this deadline? So you're pretty specific about what you're expecting from them and you're staying tuned in to how you can help them stay on track. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Even Andrew Carnegie, who was at one point the richest man in the world, when he would go to a person, this is when we had typing pools. So this is early 1900s, like prior to 1910, because he sold in uh, at the end of 1909. But he would go to the typing pool and he would say, um, do you have time that you could type a letter for me? Uh, he owned the company. He could have said, type the letter. But when we're managing our subordinates effectively, we make them feel valued and appreciated so that they want to do the work. And like what you're talking about, when you're actively managing, you're staying connected to how you keep them on track. Right. And I think face-to-face interaction is a key asset for a company Mm -hmm. because if you're just hiding behind a screen and sending out messages to your employees, how are they going to value anything you say? Because right now you're just words on a screen. You're Mm -hmm. not a person to them. But if you come in and you check on your employees, they are going to be more willing 
to work for you and do the things that you're asking. Yeah, makes total sense. That kind of brings us to the third one. When they're not doing the things that you're asking them to do, uh, you've got to have some of those difficult conversations. When the behaviors are off or the outcomes are off, you have to deal directly with them. One of the things that gets super frustrating is when we allow a non-performer or a jerk to stay in the organization. When you don't deal with that, what kills a company isn't hiring the wrong person. What kills a company is not firing the wrong person once you have them. Right. It kills the company morale. And if you are not dealing with an employee properly, other employees are seeing that. Yes. So then they start to think, well, if this person is getting away with doing all of this and being lazy, then I should be able to. Or what's the point of all the hard work I'm doing? They're getting rewarded the same way. And they're going around hiding, taking naps. Right. Follow through is so important. So if you tell an employee that if they do something wrong, then they will get in trouble. But then they do that thing incorrectly and you don't confront them about it. You've just affirmed they should keep doing the wrong thing. Right. What is there to tell them to fix it if you are not stepping in? And the way I always explain it to management groups is I have people raise their hand like, hey, any of you have kids in here? And you'll get a whole bunch of people that raise their hands. I'm like, so how many of you have been through the two-year-old stage with your child? Most people that are in management classes have been. I say, so if you tell your two-year-old, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you. And then they do it again and you don't spank them. It only takes one time before that kid's like, (laughs) I can do whatever I want. I don't know if really that's what the evil laugh and (laughs) talk of a kid, a two-year-old is, but that's what I imagine is they already figure it out at two years old. And how much smarter are we at our age than the average two-year-old? And yet we let people do the wrong things. We don't address it. And we wonder why other people start to perform poorly as well. Exactly. And that's another reason why I think we should be friendly in business, but not necessarily friends in all cases, because it can become so difficult to address a problem if you consider that person a really close friend. Yes, that's the absolute truth. Our next one is you've got to run great meetings. I know meetings are a source of intense frustration for lots of people, because a lot of times we go to these meetings and at the end of the meeting we think, you know, that really should have just been an email because there are a lot of meetings that really don't have a point. But one of the things that I've noticed that seems to be a huge frustration for Gen Xers and for some millennials is we have about 14% of the working population in the United States is baby boomers. I've noticed that baby boomers are so attached to their phones. And I never thought I would say that because they complained ridiculously about millennials and Gen Z being on their phone, but they're on their phone in meetings and they leave the ringer on. I'm sure I I was going to say, I'm sure they don't mean to, but in reality, I'm not sure they know how to turn the ringer off. (laughs) And so the ringer's on and it's going off and they're checking their text messages and they're checking out of the meeting. I don't care what generation you are. If you're not effectively engaging in the meeting, if you're not present mentally, emotionally, and physically, that's step one. You can't run a great meeting without that. 
You need to have an agenda. You need to have a time frame. You need to stick to that. And you need to make your meetings engaging. People should want to be at your meetings. Right. And I think going along with that, you need to outline clear expectations for how meetings will run, as well as within a meeting. You also need to outline clear expectations for the employees. That's so good. Because if you if you set it up in the beginning to say no phones in the meeting, like people know, don't bring your phone into the meeting. And they just leave it at their on their desk. They come to the meeting, then go back, check their phone. When you get out of the 30, 45 minute meeting and you're fine, right. nobody's gonna, you know, die. The universe is not going to collapse because you didn't have your phone on you for 30 minutes. Exactly. So anyway, I just, it's been an interesting observation. I've seen so many of the older generation and I'm talking like 60 to 70 year olds that are in meetings, but just cannot stand to not have their phone on them ringer on answering calls. Like I've seen people walk out of important meetings because their phone went off. Like, Oh no, no, no. Hey, yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm in a meeting right now. And they're saying all this in the meeting, disturbing everything. Yeah. So run a great meeting, but I like what you said, set some clear expectations. And some people need something to fidget with during a meeting and that's where you have specific guidelines for that as well. Yes. If you need to fidget with something, take notes. Maybe doodle on the side of your paper. As long as you are paying attention, actively engaging, and you are taking the information from the meeting. And not disrupting it for other people. Right. Then that should be all right. Absolutely. So number five, and this one kind of goes along with everything, uh, is make sure that you communicate constantly and repetitively. The Ebbinghaus forgetting curve talks about the number of times you have to hear something before you take it seriously, and then the number of times you have to hear it in order to actually commit it to long-term memory. Things like, what are the values of the organization that we use to filter all our decision-making? If you talk about that at the start of every meeting, then you start to keep your people on track. But you have to say it at least seven times before your employees are like, pretty sure Megan is serious about this. Maybe I should pay attention. And then you have to hear it about 21 to 25 times before you've committed it to long-term memory. Exactly. So think about hearing a phone number for the first time. You list out all of these numbers. Okay, maybe you remember it for a few seconds. But if that is the only time that you hear it, are you going to remember it next week? Probably not. You have to repeat the numbers in order to remember them. Mm -hmm. The same thing goes in business with the expectations and guidelines and goals. You need to hear it over and over again to reinforce it in your mind. Just like the song by Tommy Two-Tone called Jenny. Eight, six, seven, five, <laughs> three, oh, nine. Like, I will never be able to forget that number. I can forget that it's Tommy Two-Tone that came up with the song, but that repetition over and over again, you talk about phone numbers, I cannot forget that phone number. That is the exact example I was thinking of <laughs> when I mentioned it. <laughs> That's awesome. So make sure that whatever's important to you, your values, your behavior patterns, the things that matter, over and over and over again, just repeat that. That's why I go back and I reread this Napoleon Hill book 
called Think and Grow Rich at the start of every year. 22 years in business now. I've read that book way more than 22 times, but a minimum of once per year. Every January, I read that book. And I I just want to make sure that I've got the 13 principles of success and the 31 causes of failure committed to memory so I don't do the bad stuff and I do the good stuff. Right. And going with that, leaders often have to reinforce those goals and expectations in their own minds, and sometimes they do that by repeating themselves to their employees. Ooh, that's a very good point, because we do learn by teaching as well as we learn by learning. So when we're in front of the group and we're teaching it, that's what makes it really stick with us. That's an excellent point. Thank you. Yeah. So these are the five things out of the book, The Motive by Patrick Lencioni. Uh, He called them the five omissions of reward-centered leaders. I just kind of flipped it around. The five things that responsibility-centered leaders do are develop your team, manage your subordinates, have difficult conversations and have them early, run great meetings, and communicate constantly and repetitively. Thank you guys for being a part of this. I'm Megan Holland. And I'm Jody Holland. We'll see you on the next Become the Leader podcast. Have a great day.